You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, so today we're going to talk about if you can run for president from prison. Spoiler alert, you can. And it's been done before, and actually it's going to be done in 2024, no matter what happens. But we'll talk about all that. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying that I'm predicting that a major party candidate is going to run from prison in the next election, but it has been done before, and everybody's already kind of talking about that historic example. It's Eugene Debs of the Socialist Party in 1920. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Got nearly a million votes, 913,000 votes. That's a lot of votes in that time. It was 3.4% of the total electorate in 1920. Not enough to win a single state's electoral votes, but a significant amount. In the previous election, I note that both parties had solicited the Socialist Party vote for them. So Eugene Debs is the example of somebody who totally ran a campaign from prison. We're going to talk about it, but they're missing one crucial detail about it. Well, about the whole story. And it's something that I haven't heard anyone bring up. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the comparison between, say, Eugene Debs and Trump. I mean, you know. Besides the fact that Eugene Debs was a socialist candidate, and you know, anyone running for the Republican nomination now, socialism would be an anathema to them. But put that aside, there's a big difference in terms of, well, well, we'll get into it. But first, I just have to talk about the Illinois gubernatorial election of 1986, because why not? I mean, you're looking up things for a podcast, and you find stories, and James Thompson is the governor of Illinois, and he's a legend Four terms as governor, 14 years as Illinois governor. He basically defeats the Richard Daley machine as a federal prosecutor operating in Cook County. He prosecutes some of Daley's, Richard M. Daley's henchmen. Daley's political machine had an iron lock on Cook County since the 1950s. James Thompson's part of that prosecuting team that convicts several of his associates. Now, James Thompson runs for governor of Illinois in 1976 on his record, and wins one of the largest margins ever. He wins as a Republican, even in Democratic Cook County. There's only like two or three counties of the 102 in Illinois that he loses, that don't go for Thompson. And when he runs for re-election in 1976, big win, wins Cook County again. He's a formidable Republican politician. People are talking about him nationally, and why not? I mean, he really has a lot of credentials. He's a moderate Republican Maybe he could be somebody's vice presidential nominee. That number comes to fruition, but in state politics, he's the master. He's just liberal enough on some issues to be seen as not too bad for Democratic voters, but he's a Republican. So you get to 1982, his third election, and the Democrats in Illinois have a secret weapon, and that is Adlai Stevenson, the third. 
Okay, so he's the son of Adlai Stevenson, the presidential candidate, 52-56, and he's a great-grandson of Adlai Stevenson, the vice president under Grover Cleveland the second time. Following all that, <laughs> what it means is the Stevenson name is still a legend in Illinois, and Stevenson III has run for things before. He runs a really tough campaign in 82, and he takes back Cook County for the Democrats. But it's not enough. It's just barely not enough, because Thompson is able to win so-called collar counties, those counties like Wills and around Chicago. Thompson wins by 5,000 votes. Stevenson tries to get a recount. The Illinois Supreme Court says there's just simply not enough irregularities to discuss a recount here. Stevenson points out that some of the ballots have markings, but these we think are markings that are just made by a machine, you know, like an extra marking on the ballot the machine made, not somebody voting twice. He's trying to bring up things to get that recount. They do not go to a recount. Uh, There actually will be an investigation of Cook County after that, and several officials will be convicted. So not only does Stevenson not get a recount, but it's bad for Democrats in that county overall. Fast forward to the um, the 1986 election. Now, Stevenson had come real close. He's a Democrat in a Democratic state. He's got a good name. Thompson's been governor a long time. Now he's got some issues he can run on. He feels pretty good about the election. Stevenson easily wins the Democratic nomination in the primary that's held. Only about 25% of voters vote in. But there's a problem. Because who wins on the lieutenant governor spot? and the Secretary of State spot to be the Democratic nominee, it's not the people that Stevenson wanted, well-known politicians in the state. It's Janice Hart and Mark Fairchild. They're running as Democrats, but they're Lyndon LaRouche Democrats. Not only is there going to be a host of conspiracy theories that they advocate, not only are they going to advocate for things like building a laser weapon, or does that sound familiar? and testing everybody in America for AIDS. There's, they have anti-Semitic theories. They have the theories about capitalism being run by the Rothschild banks, um, that the UK is trying to reestablish the British Empire, you know, Kissinger's in control of the world, all of these things. Their main issue in Illinois is that the Illinois Democrats are taking their instructions from Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. They're going to execute a real war on drugs. One of the things that Janice Hart says when she wins the nomination for Illinois Secretary of State is that it's going to be just like Patton. We're going to roll the tanks down State Street. And as one of their campaigns, these two LaRouche candidates have a military jeep with a huge sign that says war on drugs. LaRouche is a mixture of a lot of things. It's a lot of conspiracy theories. There's some element where he kind of started as a Marxist, and there's an element where he's against world capitalism. But at its heart, it's a right-wing extreme party, too, because there's elements of this conducting this really extreme war on drugs and this really extreme increase in military spending, even beyond what Reagan's doing in the 80s, to stand up to the USSR. Now, Stevenson's looking at it. He had a chance to run against this guy's governor as a Democrat. Now, if he accepts the Democratic nomination, he's going to have to run with these two guys on the ballot. And there's nothing they can do. What happened in the primary? The National Democrats look at it. The Illinois Democrats look at it. And it appears that running on the ticket with Stevenson were 
uh, two people, one with a Polish-sounding name, the other with a German-sounding name, whereas the candidates running on the LaRoche ticket are Hart and Fairchild. That's part of it. Also, one of Stevenson's candidate for lieutenant governor, his father had been involved in a feud in politics with Chicago Mayor Harold Washington, the first African-American mayor, very popular fellow there, and maybe some people took it out on his candidate. Whatever happened, they narrowly lose. In the same year, the LaRouche campaign runs about 700 different primary campaigns across the nation, and they get a ballot initiative on the California budget about their views on AIDS and this, the policies that they want to enact. Um, later, they're going to be convicted for having forged signatures to get on that ballot, hiring a firm who forged signatures to get on that ballot. They have a very successful year from their point of view in 86, this kind of offbeat campaign. You certainly in the 80s and 90s heard a lot about LaRouche. Like there would be, um, they were kind of card table guys whenever you got out of a subway or some, maybe a couple thousand supporters across the country, but they were very, very active supporters, very rooted in conspiracy theory and all of that. LaRouche lives on this, you know, million dollar ranch in Virginia that a Texas oilman provided for him. He never pays any in rent. Um, when they try to go after him for not paying taxes, he says it's a security. It's not a home. It's security because the government's out to get him, you know. And put this all aside, back to the Illinois 1986 gubernatorial election. Well, Adlai Stevenson has no choice and he has to desert the party that he's been a supporter of and his family's been a supporter of for so long. And he runs on something called the Illinois Solidarity Ticket. He will not run on the Democratic ticket. There will be no candidate for governor on the regular Democratic ticket. Only these two lowerish candidates will run. Stevenson's trounced in the election. He gets 40% of the vote where he'd come nearly close to beating Thompson the last time. In the debates, Thompson's like, what kind of leadership does it show you can't even get your primary candidates elected? And you decided not to pick one candidate because she was a woman and then a woman beats him in the primary. Well, you know, so he used it to his advantage, even though overall Thompson felt that the whole thing was a little insane and everybody worried about uh, LaRouche getting anywhere near major politics. Uh, Stevenson's going to have a challenge trying to get people there. They're going to have to end up selecting three different buttons in order to vote for the candidate Stevenson wants. He's, he's lucky to get the 40% that he got. Of course, he does defeat the regular Democratic ticket in that election, but James Thompson will get more votes and we'll, um, we'll get another term as governor. In 1988, Lyndon Roosh is convicted for mail fraud, for defrauding the IRS, for taking out loans, not paying them back, uh, using fraud to obtain the loans, and for conspiracies involving all of those crimes. He gets a 15-year sentence. This brings him to the 1992 election, and indeed, Lyndon Roosh does run for president first in the Democratic primary. And then when Bill Clinton, Jerry Brown battle that out, Bill Clinton gets the nomination. He decides to run on the national economic recovery ticket and gets about 26,000 votes. He gets those votes from prison. So he is one of the examples of a candidate who has run for president from prison. He's not everybody's favorite. If it was the only example, I don't think it would be much precedent. We're going to talk about the other one that there's more of a case for 
And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court in a second. I mean, I just do want to say that it's really a joke campaign because the getting 26,000 in the 1992 election, if we, if any of us really ran nationally, it wouldn't be impossible to get that maybe. Um, he gets a lot less than, say, the Libertarian Party, uh, Andre Maru in that election, Eleanor Filani running, uh, and we'll get about 75,000 votes. So, you know... And this Howard Phillips running on the taxpayer ticket that'll get more votes than he. So he's, he's pretty low, even among the other candidates that run in these elections. And of course, Ross Perot getting 19 million votes in that 92 election. Okay, so first to my honor roll. I know I'd mentioned a previous podcast about how right now, basically, what I'm doing is my history can beat up your politics. It's full time for the time being. And asked if anybody is able to and wants to, you know, donate. Uh, we still have that link up at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And uh, we also have a Patreon. And I can't thank you enough for your response. I mean, um, J.P. Delofsky, Sean Rivers, Cody Brandis, Marcy Samples, Jason, Jason Petrie, Paul Sumner, Crystal Gazelle, James Irvine, Joshua Mayer, Sean O'Neill, Chris Rucker, Carmelo M., Isaac Martin, Fred from Colorado, Dick Shriver, Chase Gore, B. Ted, Justin Adams, Michael Smith, Stacy, Jamal Harrison, Brandon, Robert Scheimer, Mark Johnson, Patrick McLaughlin, Matthew Jackson, Freethinkers Network, Michael Glass, Bruce F., Ryan Kellerman, Mark Salter, Paul Sullivan, Erica, Robert Nicholson, Brian Gold, A.J. Mari, Thomas Caldwell, Justin Chaser, Race Car Penguin, Al Mendelson, thanks Al, Eddie C, Bryce Drummond, Paige Brousseau, Christopher Wagner, Mark Hale, John Blackwell, Ulysses, Matthew Stewart, Alfred Ribbett, Chris Valenzuela, and many more. Uh, also, people that have been donating a long time, Michael Duchak, Matt Schneider, Brian Dodd, Kevin Witten, Chris Bowen, David Laughlin, Peter Williams, Cancer Bottle, Eric Gold, longtime donor. I can't tell you how much it helps. This is a podcast, you know, we do have some, we need to buy books at times. We need to have a constant stream of JSTOR journal articles available to us, newspapers.com, New York Times, couple of major newspapers. Everything's beyond the paywall these days. There's so little free on the internet, you, you know, and that, that's something that's changed since I started the show. You know, computer goes, you go through computers a lot faster as a podcaster, I'll tell you that. Okay, enough, enough of the belly aching. Logan Lloyd, Rachel Johnson, Joseph Kaufman, Ben Wood, Michael Alexander, Kenneth Kirby, Patrick Walters, Michael Fulton, Stephen Lewis, Jason Davis, um, Joseph Dweck, David Calabrese, Joshua Clark, Gretchen Waldo. I appreciate all these people who have been long supporters. So, if you want to join up right now at the Patreon, if you sign up, we got um, an advanced view of Carter 1977, which will run in September. We got Blackhawks War, which we're probably not going to run till the end of October. You can get it now. So, so if you're on the Patreon, you'll get some things. Draft, L, uh, Draft Johnson about Lyndon Johnson, the 1968 convention. Okay, thank you. Back to the program. So Lyndon LaRouche is not really an important campaign to speak of. It's a little precedent, but it's not much. 
The one that's probably the best example is that of Convict 2253, which is the way the Socialist Party of America named him at their nominating convention in 1920. That's how they announced who they were nominating. Convict 2253. Yes, indeed, their candidate, Eugene Debs, a longtime labor activist, candidate several times, very strong run in the 1912 election. Their candidate, Eugene Debs, was in prison for sedition at least according to Woodrow Wilson's administration, in laws that would later be changed. Here's what he said in a speech in Canton, Ohio. This was during World War I as the government's trying to recruit people and draft people, and he makes this speech. And here, let me emphasize the fact that it cannot be repeated too often that the working class who fought all the battles, the working class who make supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnished their corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. He also makes a statement that the working class should be good for more than just being cannon fodder. Woodrow Wilson's Justice Department hears it, indicts Debs on 10 counts related to the Espionage Act, charging that he did unlawfully, willfully, and feloniously cause an attempt to incite subordination, disloyalty, mutiny, and refusal of duty in the military and naval forces of the United States. In fact, the federal prosecutor, Joseph Brettenstein, makes it clear in a New York Times article that Debs was not being indicted for any espionage action. In other words, he didn't hand a note to any of America's enemies, Germany or Austria-Hungary or anything like that. He didn't do any actual spying. No, he was charged because of the things he said in his speech. His defense in the trial was that it was the truth. There's not a single falsehood in that speech, he said. If there's a single statement in it that will not bear the light of truth, I will retract it. But if what I said is true, and I believe it is, then whatever fate or fortune may have in store for me, I shall preserve inviolate the integrity of my soul and stand by it to the end. He loses a trial. He's imprisoned. The Socialist Party runs a campaign. In fact, they have a great moment on movie newsreels where they announce that the convention has given him the nomination. They visit him in the federal penitentiary. The Women Socialists of America present him a bouquet of flowers. This is all on the newsreel. He accepts it and says goodbye, and I have to go serve my time. Journalists come to interview him in his prison cell, Party workers come in, get statements from him, and then these statements will be read out. There's distribution of campaign literature. There's a whole coordinated Socialist Party campaign that goes on. It's not their first election. They ran the election in 1916. It was a different candidate then. He runs in 1912. Uh, he's This party is about the third party in America at this time. It's a big drop between the two major parties, but it's about the third party, the top of the others, let's just say that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm Jane Perlez 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And if you go back to the 1916 campaign, this is what I think is critical about Eugene Debs' run for president. Both parties, but particularly Wilson's Democrats, were soliciting the Socialist Party voters to please come to their side and changing policies in some cases to get socialist voters. So it's not like they're a nothing burger. Despite him being in prison and probably helped by it, Debs obtains 913,000 votes, that 3.4% of the electorate in 1920. He'll do particularly well in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin, where there's affinity for socialism. He gets 80,000 votes in Wisconsin, about 12% of the total, his best state. He still doesn't win that state. That's overwhelmingly won by Warren Harding. Uh, New York, he gets about 200,000 votes. Pennsylvania, 70,000. Same amount in about Illinois. A good amount in California, maybe 60,000 votes. In some southern states, there's none or very little vote recorded for him. Here's the thing. In 1920, there's very little dispute about Deb's eligibility to run for president. And maybe he built this precedent, all right? If someone else is going to run for president now, there's at least going to be one because uh, the Tiger King guy, Joe Exotic, uh, whatever his name is, you know, is going to be running from for president from prison in 2024 in any case. But put that aside, if there's a major party candidate running for prison, it's going to have Debs to thank to some extent for the precedent. Why? Because Debs' image character, there's a better word than that, I want to say, celebrity status, stature, just say stature, would make it, would have made it very difficult to not allow him to run. Um, despite the fact that it's a, not as many votes, you know, the Socialist Party got over 500,000 votes, over half a million in the 1960 election when a different candidate was running. There was a large constituency that wanted to vote for him and that, you know, I'm a party saying that he's in prison is not a problem for them. There's something else. I mean, there's a big group of people that believe that his conviction is unfair, that what he did was merely covered by the First Amendment. He just spoke words. In fact, Warren Harding is going to win the election. And despite the fact that Woodrow Wilson would not give Debs a pardon even after the war, even as he's the Democrats are defeated in the election, up until the last day of his presidency, he does not pardon Debs. Warren Harding decides to pardon Debs in December 1921 um, for the sake of stability in the country, because there's a lot of feeling that that conviction was something based on the war, and Harding's going to 
you know, he's pledged to continue to normalcy. But yeah, not only does Debs run for president, but he's in movie theaters throughout the country. Now, either people are going to be hissing at him or they're going to be cheering for him, depending on where that movie theater is and who's in the room. The New York Times, for instance, was aghast that a felon might get votes from prison. The acknowledged criminal is nightly applauded as loudly as many of the candidates for the presidency have won their honorable, honorable eminence by great and unflagging service to the American people. That read an editorial in the New York Times, June 12, 1920. Well, you know, then and now, you either care or you don't what the New York Times writes. Many voters didn't at that time. They're having rallies around the area of the prison all over the country, distributing literature, organizing volunteers. It's a big increase from 590,000 in the 1916 election to 913,000 in the 1920 election. You can attribute some of that to Debs, but I believe a good part of it is the martyrdom aspect. So you're going to see when someone says, can you run for prison? Immediately, we're going to go to Eugene Debs, okay? I will point out the Nation magazine um, about all this comparing Debs to Trump says that, but Debs was a socialist, a free speech champion, and a fearless organizer. Trump's no Eugene Debs, says the nation. Debs was a proud member of the working class, a visionary advocate for economic, social, and racial justice, and one of America's greatest champions of freedom of speech. His imprisonment was a travesty. And his 1920 presidential bid represented a righteous challenge to the government that is widely viewed, Woodrow Wilson's government, as outstretching its authority. Well, what's the problem with that? I think, you know, obviously, well, anyone who's a supporter of Trump will just say, I believe the same thing. Well, I'll, I'll just say, with the light of history here, you know, what Deb said versus what he being imprisoned is not something that would hold up in court these days. Speaking of the court, there's actually um, court precedent now on this question of can you run from from a prison cell? And um, it goes to this. Candidates for president, according to the Constitution, must be natural-born citizen of the United States, at least 35 years old, and have been a resident of the United States for 14 years. Okay. Those are the only eligibility. Now, there's uh, through amendments, others have been added. For instance, you can't have been president twice for those full terms, 22nd Amendment. And then the 14th Amendment has a clause about being ineligible if you participate in an insurrection. Holdover discussion, I'm sure that's something that will be brought up in various states. But putting that aside for the moment, those are just the, the only requirements of the federal constitution. So this all comes to a question. If you're going to stop someone from running from a prison cell, then it must go to states. And here you have a problem. One is a California Supreme Court decision, oddly enough, right? The state of California added a requirement in primaries that candidates reveal their taxes to the public. If they don't, they can't be on the ballot. California's own Supreme Court didn't get to the U.S. court their own Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional, that they have to match the federal requirements for who's eligible for president. Okay, fair enough. 
So then you go to the one Supreme Court case on this, 1999, U.S. Term Limits v. Thornton, where the state of Arkansas adopted a rule in its constitution in 1992 that limited people running for the House of Representatives if they had served three terms. This is a problem, those challenging it said, because the Constitution says that the requirements are simply, this is for the House, 25 years of age, seven years of citizenship, and being an inhabitant of the state. You don't even have to necessarily be in the district, but an inhabitant of the state. But Arkansas adopted that Amendment 73. The U.S. Supreme Court rules that the Constitution prohibits states from adopting congressional qualifications in addition to those enumerated in the Constitution. You can't add to it. A state congressional term limits amendment is unconstitutional if it has a likely effect of handicapping a class of candidates and has a sole purpose of creating additional qualifications indirectly. Furthermore, allowing individual states to craft their own congressional qualifications would erode the structure designed by the framers to form a more perfect union. And I think the reference there is if we start having states limit things, what's to stop them from saying you have to own property to be a House member in the state? In any case, generally they're saying you as states don't have the power to limit what's in the federal constitution. Okay, and that's what right there, everything I've talked about so far, the wacky LaRouche case, the Eugene Debs example, the Supreme Court decision on this is something that's been in articles all over the web and discussed and I'm sure will be discussed if there's more references to this. There's one thing that I haven't seen come up too much, and that's that in that U.S. Supreme Court case in 1999, there was a dissent. And the dissent got four votes. And it simply said that the states should be able to rule in this case because the Constitution doesn't say that they cannot. Here it is. The Constitution is silent about the exercise of a particular power, then that is where the Constitution does not speak, either expressly or by necessary implication. The federal government then lacks that power, and the states enjoy it. This is the dissent, not the, not the decision, not the law of the land. It's the dissent. The federal government's powers are limited and enumerated. The ultimate source of the Constitution's authority is the consent of the people. Now that's the dissent, and it didn't prevail. The prevailing opinion was Arkansas cannot put a term limit. The dissent was Arkansas can. Now stretch that out to the subject we're talking about, and it would be the same thing. Uh, a state, say a Pennsylvania or Wisconsin is a hypothetical example, a state where it would matter, could say, you can't get on our ballot if you're running from prison, if you're incarcerated. They could make that a limit. They could say felony. They could say whatever it is, whatever it is can't run. It gets interesting if it were to go to the Supreme Court because this is what no one's talking about. The author of that dissent is Clarence Thomas, who happens to be the only person still on the court from that 1999 decision. And he didn't rule in favor of the decision. He ruled in the dissent. Okay, so you take every potential way things could go from there. Yes, of course, he could say stare decisis. That would be odd, wouldn't it? He could say that. I didn't agree with that decision, but that's, you know, it's it stood for this many years fine. Certainly a way out. He could simply change his mind. The Supreme Court, in terms of the decisions, can do whatever it's want. There's no one that can stop them except for a future court. 
That's it. In terms of the decisions they make. So he can, Thomas could totally change his mind on it and bring the others with him and, and say that no, a state can't put a limit like saying you can't run from prison. I will say that if either of those things happen, though, and if you're a Justice Thomas and you're more a believer of states' rights, if you do that, there is important precedent that you would be setting. In other words, if a state can't limit who can be on the ballot, you're now saying that's not just for Trump and his being in jail or what have It also could apply to a term limits down the road. It could apply to some other element that you want. Maybe you want states to have the ability to increase the age of the representative. Can't do it under this ruling. So there's consequences for making that decision. And in 1999, at least, he expressed strongly that he believed states had this power. What could happen? Who knows? You know, it's hard predicting what a court can do. I just do point out that that dissent came from him. Uh, it would probably behoove a state that was looking to ban a candidate running from prison to do it now and get it on the books if that's what they were wanting to do. It probably won't happen. Look, most of these indictments, I see the, the various indictments, the trials. It's really hard to think that they're going to get everything done um, before the election. But if in the chance that you do get that, um, yeah, not only um, can you run a campaign from prison, the last time it was done, it was possibly a boost to a very different type of candidate with a very different charge against him. That's it for now. Just a quick visit on this topic. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycan'tbeatupyourpolitics. If you can donate something, great. Um, there's other ways to help the show. Just spread the word about the show. Write a good review on uh, Apple Podcasts. That really helps. And uh, just tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. Appendix. Just a little thing I found. One of my trips to the library. Watchers of WGBH Educational TV in Boston were told on February 7, 1968, that if they had two television sets to gather them and put them in the same room, place them six feet apart, and then tune one to channel two and the other to the UHF station channel 44. At 7 p.m., sure enough, on one set, was television host David Silver interviewing a local theater director in black and white. On the second set, TV 44, Silver is on in full color, listening to his own interview of the theater director and providing commentary of it, calling himself a phony, among other things. It's 1968, remember. Revolutionary television. Then... David Silver plays ping pong with himself and those watching who were able to have two television sets and put them in the same room can see the ball going from one side to the other on these unconnected TV sets. The ball bounces from channel two to channel 44 back and forth in living rooms all across Boston. 
he made a point that the left program on the channel second was uh, channel two was always comprehensible on its own so people wouldn't be weirded out only those who were on the right channel if they were watching that alone would be confused For two years, What's Happening, Mr. Silver, transformed television stations, transformed educational television. Don't be boring was Silver's only rule. He had previously had no television experience and came to WGBH saying he could do something better. And the station gave him a chance. And so for two years, his program persisted doing radically different things, but things that are predictive of the modern television. A very young Howard Zinn provided Vietnam War commentary on Silver's program. Remote interviews featuring vintage clothing store owner Harry the Greek, or a visit to a Boston head shop that is a shop to get your head right. In other words, paraphernalia used for consumption of cannabis and tobacco and items related to cannabis culture. He'd feature a countdown of the five worst pop songs of the week. He'd cut and splice the film so that graphics would appear on the screen, like a dancing person appearing on the screen while he's talking or eating a banana. He'd oversaturate colors, all the things you're not supposed to do, really hard cuts. He went to a love it and interviewed hippies. Hi, hello. What does all this symbolize to you? Anything at all? Yeah, I think it's nice. It's nice? Yeah. Why, why is it nice? I don't know, because mm. they can express what they think. People can express it. Are you expressing what you think? No. But probably one of his most momentous shows was when he had the What's Happening, where he had 25 Vietnam War vets and 21 Vietnam War protesters and had them have drinks before the airing and put them into a room. There was a little hostility. We started to see them mixing. We get that you're protesting, one of the vets told the protesters, but it's hard to understand that when you're in a paddy field getting shot at. This is what Silver said years later, talking about his television experiment. I wafted around chafting ad lib with everyone. I remember vividly the good vibes generated and a subtle truth emerging quietly. Civility prevailed, cordiality grew, and even though the crucial element of the demon alcohol was in the mix, it was a truly lovely evening. Unfortunately, the whole show was wiped out. Two-inch high-band videotape was very expensive in 1968, and it didn't even seem weird at the time that you'd wipe shows. After all, NBC wiped many tapes of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, so who am I going to complain, Silver said. I remember with glee the repeated trick of shooting the live show on Thursday night, usually with me or more or less alone in the studio, while multiple film chains, often controlled by the brilliant mind of associate producer David Atwood, sort of spluttered into the ongoing show, be that an interview or a monologue or a purely visual piece of madness. The experiment impressed local Boston underground newspaper publisher, Mel Lyman, publisher of The Avatar, already itself subject of multiple controversies that just built its audience. The the mayor of Cambridge trying to shut it down and them having to go to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts to fight for its right to be distributed. 
He writes in his pages, by God, Dave, you are truly a pioneer in television. Your show is without a doubt the most real, the most alive, and the most important thing happening in the TV medium. I want the word to get around. Watch the Silver Show. The weirdest thing, perhaps, about David Childers' Silver's TV experiment, uh, two things to note. One is that Julia Childs was filming in the studio next door. Here's what David Silver says. Julia often did her show in Studio B while we were doing What's Happening, Mr. Silver, in Studio A. One of my fondest and most delicious memories is eating leftovers from her show along with our two studio crews. What could be more wonderful than that? Having dinner cooked by her at the child house, too, and eating with Julia and Paul, her gentle, witty, and knowledgeable husband. Not only dining on supremely tasty food, but hearing from the two of them a series of hysterical anecdotes anecdotes about their learning curve on French cooking. Watching Julia's completely honest and wonderful natural television presentations actually helped me in my own slightly panicky weekly approach to hosting a TV show, he said. For two years, twice a week, What's Happening Mr. Silver transformed home televisions into portals for psychologic fever dreams uninterrupted by commercials or common sense. Silver, needless to say, way ahead of his time employing techniques that would be used later on cable TV and other mediums, particularly when digital media allowed you to do things much better. But the reason his show shut down is crazy. It's not having Howard, a young Howard Zinn on, right? It's not saying bad things about the Vietnam War. It's not talking to hippies, love-ins, and the like. It's not exploring issues. It's not, you know, really on the fringe end of, of endorsing psychedelic drug use, so they do that directly. They're featuring all these people. It's none of that. It's when he makes an off comment about Nancy Sinatra that somehow got the show canned. Maybe somebody made a phone call close to Sinatra. The things you find when you pull a book off a library shelf. 